Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why in how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me those ears. And if you're watching this on a video platform, thank you for lending me those eyeballs. Today, I got Mr. Perfect Close himself, James. I call him the pure Muir on the Sales Influence Podcast. James, what is happening? Victor, it is so great to finally be on your show. We've known each other for years, and finally, you invite. I don't know what. Maybe I hit some threshold, and you've decided to let me, you know, be in front of your audience. I have no idea. Uh, you, you should have been on sooner. Thank you for the for the beating. I appreciate that, James. James, let these folks know uh, on the Sales Influence Podcast who you are and why you're awesome. Why am I awesome? Uh, well, uh, I'm the CEO of Best Practice International. I'm also the author of the best-selling book, Perfect Close, which is the top-selling book on closing uh, on Amazon and other uh, stores. And um, why am I awesome? Um, gosh, I don't know. You'd have to ask my clients that question. I, right? uh, I, I'm, I'll ask your clients. But I, I, I just want to – can I share the number that you shared with me? On self-publishing. Sure. So we were having this discussion. Now, James's book, The Perfect Close, okay, do not think, do not process, just go hit the credit card on Amazon and buy the book, The Perfect Close. I don't care if you're just starting out in sales, been in sales, been around since the dinosaurs in sales, just go get the book, please, The Perfect Close. It, it is that good of a book. And we were talking about publishing or, or going through a publisher, and James informed me, this is why he's awesome, I think, that he has sold over 20,000 copies on his own. That's amazing, man. Congratulations, man. I, I, I celebrate you, man. I celebrate you on that. Yeah, we're just solving a very simple problem, too. So um, anyway, it's, I think it's a testimony. It definitely has exceeded my expectations. And so, um, but we're all warming up for the next thing, which will be on referrals. That'll maybe, maybe next, you know, beginning of uh, 2021, we'll have that out. Do we have a title for it yet? Or is it still under wraps? No, per, per, perfect <laughs> referral. And as you and I, I don't want about, to assume. I don't want to assume. I, that's what I would have thought of the perfect referral. Well, I since I, since I don't have a publisher, I don't have to debate with them what's the what the title is going to be either. So we'll see. I'll test it. I'll test it to make. You know, the funny thing about the perfect close, most people assume because of the title, it's some kind of gimmick, right? That gets people. And so I think a lot of people actually have avoided the book just because of the the title, uh, just leads them to believe it's some sneaky manipulative tactic to to get people to do stuff. Well, it's interesting. When I saw the title the first time, full disclosure, I was like, what? The per- really? The perfect close? There is no perfect close, right? And then when I read the book and I understood the perfect close, which you're going to share with the folks here a little bit, it wasn't so much the 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 the, the chapter or the information around the perfect close, right? It was all the content that you layered before and after that that I thought was really valuable, that I was like, wow, this guy really gets it. And there was a lot of things. I think I told you this. As I was reading your book, I'm like, yeah, I could have written that because I knew that. <laughs> I could have written that because I knew that. You know, I never looked at it that way, but I kind of knew that. And it was the book that I wish I had written. That's kind of why I envied you a little bit. I'm like, I should have I should have wrote that book, but I'm glad you did that. So yeah, so many of the principles ring so true that people go, oh yeah, oh yeah. But then again, why, you know, why weren't you doing it, right? So that's the, I think that's why people have resonated so well with it. It's just that they, um, they, they recognize intrinsically, oh yes, this is the answer, right? And maybe we should give a, a little bit of, I mean, saying it's a perfect close is pretty bold, right? I get guff all the time for people saying that, you know, Hey, I, I just tried to use it yesterday and I didn't get my deal where, you know, this, that's not a hundred percent closing. And, um, 
So let, let me just give you some some data. There's a company out there called Gong.io. And what these guys do is they do call analytics um, for call centers. And so the question they asked was, hey, what is the best closing approach that's out there? And they analyze over a million calls and the perfect close, which I'm hoping we're going to share with your audience today, um, turned out hands down is the best closing approach that there is bar none. And they found that the, the best performers actually use it about three times per hour, which should tell you that it doesn't get old the more that you use it. No, no. I, when I read it, I go, well, that's, it was like, oh, you know, they, I guess everybody has this dramatic, like, what is it? You know, it's like, it's, it's behind this glass barrier, you know, high security. And you got to, you got to shatter the glass in case of emergency just to access it. And then when you read it, you're like, oh, and you know, you mentioned Gong. Gong is, Gong, Gong is one of my favorite companies because, you know, they study voice analytics, you know, it, it's, it's, by the way, Gong.io, I've talked about, you know, to ad nauseum actually. And so how did, before we get to the perfect close, you know, a little bit about your background, James, you know, how did you get into sales? You know, what's the evolution of James Muir in sales? Well, uh, the, I can give you the short version, the long version. The short version is I'm an, I'm an accidental salesperson. And so uh, I fell into sales. Our company opened a, uh, a office in a remote location. I thought I was going there to be the administrative guru to manage the whole place and all that. And then we lost our key sales guy. And I had pre- previously been going out with the sales guys to be a domain expert, to help answer the hard questions about what we did, right? So as a subject matter expert, we'll say. And when we lost this person, they said, hey, we got to have someone out there that can sell because this guy took all of his clients with him, right? So we're desperate. Now it's Ooh. looking like, like this investment's going to fail. And if we don't go out there and generate new sales, the whole, so no pressure, right? No pressure on me, right? If you don't go out and sell stuff, we're going to, the company's going to go, you know, six feet under. And so I got drafted into that and I honestly had no mentors whatsoever to work with. And so I had to uh, figure it out on my own. And I was, I'll be candid with you. I was terrible, absolutely terrible. I'm very smart about how our product solved problems, but I didn't know anything about closing. I didn't know anything about booking appointments. I didn't know anything about prospecting, right? All of those things were trouble uh, for me. And so I started, I'm, I'm a nerd, right? I think you and I share that together. We're, 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 we're like uh, sales nerds. Yeah. And, and so I just started reading everything I could read and I, I tried a bunch of it and some of it's very good, but in the area of closing, oh my Lord, about 95% of the advice out there is absolute garbage. It is, and so, and I literally tried to use these in, in like, I remember um, one case where I was using, I had just learned about the alternate choice clothes and we're presenting to this big company. We are, and they were already using our uh, software and we wanted them to use our services. Okay. And I remember I'm having dinner with this guy and his COO. And, um, and I remember at the right moment, cause I had just learned this, right. And this was a big op for the company and at a really crucial time. Okay. And so I say, Hey, this is about to, this is about to go bad. This is about you, to go bad. You know people. it, you know it. Right. And so I say, I say, Hey, did you want option a or option B? Of course, either one of which is me. Right. And this is like, this is like a, almost a million dollar deal that we're talking about. Right. And that guy pushed away from the table and looked at, looked at me like like I had just spit in his food or something. And he goes, James, if you think that because we already use your software that you're getting this business, you are dead wrong. I am going to I'm going to look eva- evaluate three different other vendors, and we're going to pick the best one that's for us, right? And the way he said three different vendors, it was like he was spitting back at me, right? And I'm like, wow, that did not work like I had you know read about in the book. And and then the sad thing is, Vic, we were easily the best choice for that guy. But just to prove a point to me, 
he picked somebody else. He picked somebody else. And so that's when I learned alternate choice clothes can work, right? It can. If you're selling like, you know, upselling somebody from a medium to a small drink or to, a, you know, yeah. if you're trying to sell small stuff, alternate choice is fine. But if you're trying to sell, you know, hundreds of thousands or million dollars deals, it, it will backfire on you. And, and and I lost that deal and a commission at a really crucial time for our company. So that was a tough, tough lesson for me. And I and I have tried all of them. There's another uh, close that's out there. Um, it's called a sharp angle close. Okay, someday I'll put up a wall of shame that has all of these ridiculous clothes on and why they don't work. <laughs> but anyway, the sharp angle one is a customer asks you an honest question. They say, "Gosh, does your solution do this?" Right? And what you're supposed to say with this other one is you're supposed to say, "Well, would you buy it if it did?" Right, and so to turn it back on them, where you're like, now think about what you're doing there. Think about how insulting here. Th- th- here you are, you're, um, you, you've got a customer that's got an honest question about whether or not you can do, you have a capability or something like that, right? And then what you do is you turn that honest question into a trap, right? I'm going to trap you into buying because you told me that if I answered that question, that you'd buy it, right? And so I, and I, and I tried that and man, when I would, I tried that one a few times and I could literally see the visible erosion of goodwill on their faces. When I tried. So anyway, I'm just telling you from personal experience, because having fallen into sales by accident, I tried and failed at almost all the different things. So the reason I wrote the book was I discovered by accident, the perfect closed questions. And then when it, later, when I'm working with my own teams, especially with subject matter experts like I was, they would tell me that the closing part was the part they hated the most. And yet, once you learn what the questions are, it's really the easiest part of the whole thing. It's, it's all the stuff leading up to that. Really, I would argue, is where most of the heavy lifting is done. The, the closing piece is, uh, is really very simple once you just you know, know the right stuff to ask. And, and you're right. It, it is everything leading up to that point. But, you know, the, the visible erosion, what you say, the visible erosion of goodwill? On their faces, you can see them get insulted by it, right? The visible (laughs) erosion of goodwill. That is such a great phrase, man. Because because now they they've detected they you've been caught selling. You never want to be caught selling, you know. And some of these questions, you know, before we get into the perfect close, people are going get to the perfect close. I got before we get to the perfect close, you know, why do you think? Because I mean, it's it's almost like I see a, a new wave of you know salespeople using some of these closes still, James. And I'm going, what's going on? I mean, you know, why do you think you know what's going on, man? Why do people still do this? Oh well, I mean, obviously, right now, if you go Google, you know, go you, go search on YouTube for closing, you're all the old crap ones. Will and for anybody who cares, I've got a whole deadly sins of closing, seven deadly sins of closing that dispel all these myths, along with the science that has already proven that they don't work. And you can just look up all the sources right there. So people, like th- these things have been studied and well-known, much of them, like always be closing, right? Those have been studied and well-known and tested for years, for years. So um, the fact that people, and so what I think is happening is you've got phony people that have never really been in sales out there and they're just propagating the stuff that they've, there are certain industries that, um, no disrespect to anybody in timeshare, but the time in, timeshare industry, you've got a high ticket item and you've got a single um, meeting that you're trying to close that high ticket item. So they tend to breed the most ridiculous closing approaches. Out there. I mean, the most dysfunctional ones are all, all, all come from the timeshare industry. Right. And so, um, but uh, here's an issue. Let me throw gasoline on what you said. Um, most people will be surprised to find out that 50 to 90% of all sales encounters, regardless of industry end without any commitment being asked for at all. 
50 to 90 percent. It, it, it varies a little bit by industry, but 50 percent is a low number. And I got to tell you, that is just a mind-boggling statistic to me that here we are. That's our job is to try to facilitate some decision-making you know, for a customer to help them get to their goal. And we're, we're failing at best 50% of the time. And in most cases, it's much, much higher than that. And if you They're said, not hey, asking. Yeah, it is. And let, me, and let me tell you, if you said, so people ask me that all the time. Well, why do you think that is? And I'll tell you my answer is that if you do go do YouTube have best closes and you start looking at the stuff, what you'll find is most of the stuff is like the two examples that I gave you. Most of them are insulting and they, they manipulate the customer. And so salespeople aren't so much afraid of asking as much as they're afraid of the damaging their relationship with the customer. They don't want to damage the goodwill that they've built up with the customer. And since they uh, can't find, they can't, they haven't found a way to ask, you know, for a commitment without damaging the relationship. They just don't do anything. That's what happens. That's, that's, an, that's such an interesting perspective. I never looked at it that way, James. That's, that's an interesting perspective that they're, it's not that they're afraid to ask. They're afraid, they're afraid that if they ask it the way they think they should ask it, they're going to erode, you know, that, that visible erosion of credit, uh, goodwill is going to be gone right in front of their eyes. And so let's get to the perfect close. Let's get to it. Uh, before people start banging away at this podcast going, get to it. <laughs> All right. Get, so, your, get your pens out. There's, there's just two questions. So literally, because you listen to this show, you don't even got to buy the book. Right, you're gonna, you're gonna, we're gonna give you the whole. Answer. I disagree. I disagree. The before and after the bookends makes the close. Go ahead. Yeah, you're right. In the book, of course, we tell, hey, you can do a shortcut to the, go to chapter twelve, and you can read the perfect close. But of course, everything right. up to that point is how to set it up. So, right. um, but there's basically just two questions, and they're total. There's zero pressure, non-confrontational, and you'll get ninety to ninety-five percent success ratio if you use these two questions, which sounds ridiculous, right? But you'll I'll let you be the judge after we share that with you. Now, before I tell you what the questions are, let me just say this. Before you go in any sales, you know, encounter, you should have a good idea of kind of what you'd like to get out of it, right? You, what do you want to happen as a result of this meeting? And what you should have is an ideal advance. Let, let's talk about advances for a second. An advance is a, a, a term that Neil Rackham point. Now, Neil Rackham is a uh, sales scientist. We'll call him the patron saint of scientific selling, perhaps, because in the uh, in the 80s, he uh, did more than 35,000 face-to-face sales encounters. He studied this, and he, he, we learned a lot of stuff about selling during that period of time. You can read about it in a book called Spin Selling. And, um, and he ended up coining a couple of phrases. One of those is the term advance. And what Neil Rackham learned is that in complex sales, in nine out of 10 sales encounters, you don't get a win or a lose. That's not what happens. What happens at a nine out of 10 sales encounters is we either get an advance where the sale moves forward in a little way. Okay. So there's some small progress that's made, or you get what he called a continuation, which is a situation where it's, well, no progress is really made, but the deal didn't die either. Okay. So those are the two things. So you got to know, you know, uh, an advance and a continuation. So with that backdrop, what you want to have is an ideal advance. What's the best thing that could happen with this meeting? And then you want a couple of backups. What are, what are, what are, let's just say my ideal advance proves unrealistic for some reason. Okay. Well, what's another thing I could ask? Right. And you want to have two of those prepared. Okay. With that, you're ready to go. Right. That's, that is uh, the beginning part of the book in a nutshell, right? Much of it. So um, the two questions are this. The first question is, does it make sense for us to X? Okay. Does it make sense for us to X? Where X is your ideal advance, right? So if I was talking to Vic, I'd say, hey, Victor, does it make sense for us to schedule an assessment to see what our best options are for you? Right. In that scenario, the, the assessment would be the, the X, right? Now, if you think mm-hmm. about this, 
There's only two things you can say, right? You're either going to say yes or you're going to say no. If you say yes, great, then let's schedule it. And then if you say no, then you're just going to fall back to the second question. And um, that is some variation of, wait for it, wait for it. Okay, well, what do you think is a good next step then? Okay. <laughs> and what I can tell you after having done hundreds of ride-alongs is that in 90% of cases, the customer will suggest a very logical step for where they're at in their uh, buying process. Now, there's actually five variations of the perfect close. And so what I just shared with you is the kindergarten version of it, right? But those are the two questions. So if you're writing it down, it's does it make sense for us to X? And then and then if they say no, then you're going to say, well, what do you think is a good next step? Okay. Um, and I don't know. Do you look like you wanted to weigh in there before I, I I'm going to tell them how to, I'm going to tell them how to upgrade this. No, no, you were, you were, you were flowing. So yeah, I'm glad you kept going. The, I, I want you to talk about, uh, before you talk about the other, the five variations, talk about the psychology of that question. You know, does it make sense for us to, you know, does this make sense for us to whatever the ask is, you know, talk about the psychology of why that question is so effective. It's super insightful question that you're asking here right now. And that's, and I've seen people get it wrong. Okay. I've even managed people and had them write it down verbatim. And then they come back to me and they've done it wrong. And so let me just tell you how subtle this is. When you're asking, does it make sense? That is very, very different than will you do X? Okay. In one, I'm asking you if you will do a, you'll commit to an action. Okay. When I say, does it make sense for us to X? What I'm really doing at its core, it's just a timing question. I'm saying, hey, is the timing right for us to do this thing? And in fact, if you like that phraseology better, it will totally work. You could say, hey, is, you know, you know, Victor, is the timing right for us to talk about scheduling an assessment for you? That would be that exact same thing phrased a different way. So if you like that way better, awesome, do it. But here's the thing. Because it's a timing question, the customer cannot reject your course of action. They cannot, um, they, all, they can only reject the timing of the action. And that is a very, very important but subtle difference between will you do this versus does it make sense for us to do this? And, um, and what it means is, is that um, regardless of their answer, emotionally, you are on much, much higher ground than if, if I just said, hey, will you do this? And they say no. Boom. You're probably even lower than when you started to ask the question emotionally, right? But if I just say, hey, does it make sense for us to do this? First of all, you're abdicating c control to the client. You're saying, hey, I, I just want your input. Is this the time, right time for you? And when I, I'll share uh, these enhanced versions, but the, what these enhanced versions of the perfect close let us do is we can either speed up the process if they want to go faster. Well, we can slow down the process if they want to go slower. It's when we try to push the customer faster than they're ready for. That's when it starts to feel like manipulation to them, right? And so by doing it this way, we're essentially taking their pulse on the rate that they want to go. And that makes them feel much more um, like they're in control. You're really being a facilitator. But the, what I'm telling you is the success ratio that you're going to get is much, much higher. They'll see you as a consultant and a trusted advisor rather than a pushy salesperson. I love what you say. You got some nice phrases coming this way in this podcast. This one is, uh, you know, you highlight abdicating control, which a lot of people think that when you let the, let the customer take control of the conversation, you're actually losing control, which is kind of an, uh, an ironic conundrum because I don't think you are. And I think by abdicating that control, uh, it makes them feel comfortable and it's non-threatening. You're not trapping them in the corner. And that's why I love what I, when I saw that phrase, I go, you know, I go, God, that's such a simple phrase, such, so non-threatening. And even when they say no, then what do you suggest the next step should be? Total abdication of control again. But now, because it, here's, here's what I think is interesting. You tell me if I think I, I think I got this in terms of the psychology behind, but you tell me if I'm wrong. 
because they rejected the first offer not to move forward, the law of reciprocity says, I feel like I need to give you something. And that's why that second question is a beast of a question. Yeah. So what do you suggest? hundred percent. Yeah. You're right on the money, right? And, and, they, and plus they are already sensing that you're actually just trying to help here. You're not pushing them too hard. And a couple of things happen when people first meet each other. Uh, they, they judge two things, warmth and competence. Okay. And so warmth is they're judging your intent. Okay. They want to know for the, in fact, literally in the first couple of seconds, when you meet somebody, the first thing that happens is they judge, what's this person's intent? Are, are they trying to help me or hurt me? And the second thing they try to figure out is, are you capable of doing whatever your intentions are? What, 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 you know, what is your competence to be able to execute your intention? And those two things, warmth and competence, you know, your intent or your, and your ability, those are the most heavily things weighed in relationships. And uh, actually a really common, this is kind of a sidebar, but a really common mistake that salespeople make is they play very heavily into competence. If I can just prove that my product sl- solves the best, I win. That's what they think. But the truth is that is not case. That is not the case. If um, if the customer detects that, even if your your product is awesome, but if they detect that your intention is to take advantage of them in some way, usually that will kill the whole thing. And in selling situations, because the customer knows that you have more information than they do, they actually weigh warmth or your intent even higher than just normal interactions when people were just meeting each other for the first time. And so you first have to prove to the customer and convince them that your intentions are noble and that you're actually just trying to help and to serve them. And then after that, you can prove your competence. But when you go in beating your chest saying, we have the best, we have the best, you're, you're, you're playing, you're putting the wrong thing first. You need to first prove that you're trying to help them out. Um, so that was a, a bit of a sidebar, but, um, there's a lot of behavioral economics, which I know you're a fan of and I am too, uh, in this. And so one of those is the reciprocity that we just talked about. Another one is called commitment consistency, and you can read that, read about that in uh, Cialdini's book. And the reason advances work is because when they make a small step towards the thing that, that you know that they're trying to meet, there is a stronger propensity for them to um, to want to remain consistent with that decision. And the closer they get to uh, that, you know, the, the goal that they're trying to get, the, the more they accelerate that. So there's two principles there. One is um, it's called commitment consistency. Once they agree to a small step, they're much more likely to agree to more, to more steps and bigger steps. So trying to just go for the whole enchilada may not be the best strategy for you. Okay. Second, uh, endowed progress, which is fascinating, totally fascinating, is people, the closer they uh, look like they are to a goal, the more they accelerate their efforts. And there's a really fascinating uh, study that was done uh, with a car wash. You may, you may, you may remember this story um, where they had these punch cards, right? And, and if, uh, if you go through the car wash, they're going to punch one of them. Once you get five, then you can come back and you can get a free car wash. Well, they did exactly the same thing, but they printed one card with five and another one with 10. And then when the person came through the car wash the very first time, the person that was held the hole puncher punched six holes on it. Right. And they said, Oh, here, I'll just do these for you. And people were like, wow, people came back literally that the, the, it was like four and five times more likely to come back when in reality, it's exactly the same number of follow up car washes that gets them the free car wash either way. It's that endowed progress or the perception that they're close to the goal that causes them to, to. So in this way, these little advances. Are, are, it's a virtuous cycle. They take a small step; it makes them want to 
can remain consistent with that. And then the closer they get to the goal, the more the more they try to accelerate the process. So that was probably I more. That. I love that. that. was probably more behavioral no, uh, economics than you wanted, but <laughs> no, that, that's that, that's exactly what I wanted. Uh, I saw also an example with uh, I think a subway punch cards, right? The number of sandwiches, you know, they just start them out, and, and so you know, God, there was so much you just said to us. It's like I want to stop you, but it's so good. But I want to stop you, but it's so good. Uh, you hit on several things. Um, this is why, you know, even though the, the perfect close is simple, it doesn't make sense for us to do, blah, if not, what do you suggest is the next step? Everybody goes, okay, that's a simple one. I don't need to buy the book. But I think it's all the psychology and all the understanding that buttresses that, that allows you to deliver that with confidence is why people should buy the book. I, I wanted to ask you about, I interviewed Brent Adamson, one of the uh, co-authors of The Challenger Sale. I'm sure you're familiar with him, right? And so, you know, he wrote a paper. He's working for Gartner now uh, as a distinguished VP. I was giving, I gave him some smack about that. I was, I laughed. <laughs> and uh, he was talking about, because I read one of his papers about sense making, which is, and you triggered me when, you know, which, which are uh, the perfect clothes. I wanted to talk to you about that because maybe you were ahead of them. And, and what they're finding out is that, there's three types of salespeople. One, they give information. The customers don't want to give more information because they're over, you know inundated with information. The other one is to give is to tell them what they should do. Nobody wants to be told what to do. And then the third one was sense making. Help the customers make sense of all the information and all the options that are out there. And I think your your you know just the way you ask that question kind of ties into that philosophy a little bit. I wonder if you could just kind of maybe add your perspective on that. Sure. So uh, what you're doing is you're kind of showing them a path, right? And so I uh, I think all of chapter ten, I think it's chapter ten. Um, we're talking about how to make the your your sales encounter inherently valuable, and that's an important thing because, like you just said, people don't need you for information. If all you're doing is spewing information, they can get that. In most cases, they can get it off the internet. And I've met customers that know more about the product and the solution than the sales guy is. That you know, because the sales guy is new. So you cannot rely on just the fact that you have some product information to be the, the reason that they meet with you. You need to be able to add some value in some way. And there's a there's I, I give seven different key ways of adding value, but the number one way is insight. And I think like the number fourth way is to show them a path, um, how, how it makes sense for them to get from point A to point B, right? And uh, there's other books out there that uh, I, I would say it's not as dysfunctional a close. It's called an agenda close. And that's where you sit down with the customer and say, all right, well, tell me a little bit about how your organization makes decisions. What, what things, what, what process are you going to go through? And you're sort of documenting this in, an, in a sequential order. And now you've essentially got all the little steps and you didn't have to come up with them. The customer came up with them for you. And then all you're going to do is facilitate their moving to the next step on this little ag- agenda. But that helps them. Um, you, what you're doing is you're facilitating their thinking. Now, I, I have been in industries. So let me let me let me pause you for a second, James, because you because you say something really important here, and I want to make sure people get it. Because you know, you and I can talk about it. We go, we get it at a meta level. We get it. But if somebody's listened to this stuff for the first time, they go, I think I kind of got it. And so I just want to slow it down a bit and tie it into the paper and tie it into what you're saying. Is that one of the things that Brett Anderson talked about in this paper that he wrote, Sense Making, is that five years ago, because you said there's two ways to really decommoditize yourself is one is to share some insight with them and also show them the path. Right. And what they're finding in this recent study is that five years ago, insight was a differentiator. He said, the problem is everybody started investing in insight research. Right. And now, you know, uh, according to Brent Adamson, insight is table stakes. 
right? So now the customer has all the information. And what you said, which is to guide them to help them make, you know, the path part is where I think the real value lies in today is to help clients make sense of it, but also provide a path for them to begin to clarify their thinking. Can you, can you add something to that line of thought? Let's empower your listeners just a little bit here. So um, what, here's the thing. Uh, like I, uh, I have been in complex B2B sales for almost three decades now where the, the, all the items are very high ticket items. They're sometimes millions of dollars. They might involve, you know, 50 stakeholders that get very, they can get very complicated. And, um, here's the, th- and so, uh, the things that we're selling very often for this group, they don't buy very often. Okay. Maybe once in a lifetime. Maybe twice in a lifetime, right? I mean, they don't. They, so they're not good at it. And so I'm trying. I want to empower your listeners by knowing that very fact makes you super valuable to them because you understand the buying process and the path way, way better than they understand it, right? So you can literally help them. And this plays into to, to other versions of the perfect close, by the way, the suggestion version is that you can help them see how they get how they can get from point A to point B and make sense of the whole thing. But there's more to making sense than just showing the steps that, you know, I could probably buy a book or I could probably figure out the steps. What they don't get is what's the trade-offs in all the decisions that they're making from point from point to point to point, right? And and there and we spent a little bit of time in Perfect Close ask talking about high value questions. And a high value question is a question the customer actually doesn't know the answer to. Okay. So when you, you you've got so little time with a customer, you absolutely do not want to ask any question that you could have found off their website. Right. They're actually because the value exchange is zero for the customer. It's all yours. It's all one sided. It's all you getting the value. Yet when you interrogate them and they give you an answer of something they already know. But when you say, Hey, let me ask you a question. As you guys start to evaluate the different criteria that you're looking for and the trade offs, how are you going to decide which ones are most important? Okay. Now that's a hard question. Right. That's a hard question because they might not have thought through all the dynamics within their own organizations. They've got different stakeholders. They all have different priorities. You just ask a hard question. Now, you cannot, you cannot, let me tell you what most salespeople do. They ask a question and literally it, not even one second later, they, they start, they ask another question or they try to answer the question for the customer. And so when you ask a high value question like the one I just gave you, you have to sit and wait. And it, for salespeople, that is like pure torture, right? You have to sit. And so what I would say, and there's a, there, by the way, all this has been studied. It's called wait time one and wait time two. It's been studied in the, um, in the uh, uh, educational space heavily, heavily. And so what you want to do is you need to wait at least two to three seconds, but maybe more uh, before they answer the first time. And then even after the answer, especially if you're in a group, you need to wait another four to five seconds because somebody else in the group will pipe in and they're going to give you all kinds of information that will help you understand what's re- the dynamics that are really going on. And in my personal opinion, Vic, um, there's usually, uh, even on a really big deal, there's only two major issues. If you can solve the top two issues, that's going to carry 80 to 90% of the weight of the whole thing. And you need to know what that is. And you can't do that if you're just talking the whole time. So you got to, you got to really listen. So, um, you, and my, my suggestion to get practical here is just take notes. And so after you ask your question, look down at your piece of paper, whatever you're writing on your tablet and just <laughs> wait and just wait. Right. And because then they know you're not going to ask another thing until they answer. And then after they answer, just start writing what they wrote, what they said. And then that'll give you the time that you need for somebody else in the group to pipe in or for them to come up and give you even more information on that. So anyway, that's, that's two different, um, approaches to showing them, um, 
make, making sense of the whole picture is, is we can show them the steps, we can un- help them understand the trade-offs that are involved with each step, and then we can ask high-value questions that what's happening is they're literally, you're developing new thinking for them when you do that, right? So they're cognating in a way, and they will believe that their meeting with you was valuable after you walk out, inherently valuable, because you f- you caused them to think in a way that didn't happen before. And so they will like being with you because you're a consultant. Yeah. Love it, man. I, I, I did. Like I said, uh, you give me so much in a short time of here. Time it's like I get which question do I ask first? Okay, so so I, I love the fact that you added, you know, to the path. What are the trade offs as you're going through this path of making you know the decision making process? I think that's a really heavy question, as you call it, a high value question. So I love that. I had never heard of uh, wait time one and wait time two. So I thank you for that. I didn't know that. I'd never heard of that. So thank you for that. I, you know, I always learn something when I get on these podcasts, right? And I, and I think that's brilliant. And you're so right, James, you know, just if you, if you don't, if you're uncomfortable with the pause, just write the, the question down, right? Or just write something down It just let them. And then, and by the way, also there was a study done. I'm not sure you've seen this one where if you just ask a question, go quiet and, and just, even when they finish talking, you just stay quiet and nod in the affirmative. They'll give you like 25% more information they or will. content, something like that. It's a huge amount of more information, actually. And that's the thing. But it's so hard. Salespeople love to talk, right? And so that's like a torture to have them have to sit there for a second and let the customers speak. But yet you really have, when you ask those high value questions, and usually you don't want to do more than two or three of those per, per meeting because they're very hard for the customer to think through. So you want to strategically think what, you know, what is the, What's a way I can add value to this meeting beyond? Now, let me let me give you another data. So, um, there's a book called Escaping the High, um, the Price Driven Sale. It's an older book, but uh, um, Neil Rackham is yeah. that a Rackham book? Yeah, it's a Rackham book. Yeah. Well, he wrote the he wrote the the um, I'm trying to remember the forward. Yeah, you know you know who the other guy is. The Wilson the the Wilson Group wrote it, right? It was the Wilson Group that actually. Maybe wrote the book. We're going to look up for this later. But anyway, go yes. ahead. it's All a right. good book. Let me let me tell you what they did. They, they did a study and they found there were three situations where the customer was willing to pay a premium for the solution, and that is the the, the salesperson uncovered a unconsidered uh, need, right? Like you have a problem that you didn't realize you had. That they found a unconsidered solution to that or an unseen opportunity. Those three things. Now, what? Just and we could say a lot about that, but I'm just going to boil it down. What those three things have in common is they're all unexpected by the client. Okay, and so you can literally add value. You can make your meeting inherently valuable, which, by the way, you have to do. If you, I mean, it's 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 just like Vic said a second ago with uh, insight. It's table stakes because if they can get if they don't. If, if you're not making your meeting, your sales meeting inherently valuable in some way, they can they can just operate on the internet. They don't need you, right? They can just work with a bot or they can work with some, right, an order taker of some kind. So um, what I'm trying to say here is a big deal. And uh, if you make though your meeting inherently valuable, you, you actually add a premium to the customer and to yourself because they're willing to pay more for the solution. So it pays to just spend a little time thinking before you go into that meeting, hey, what can I do to make this? And add some unexpected value to this meeting because that's the, the common denominator between all those things. Is I want to surprise them a little yeah. bit with some value they did, they weren't expecting. 
I'm just going to, I'm going to take that little snippet right there, the last two, three minutes, and I'm just going to just put it on replay for people when they ask me, well, Victor, uh, what, what, what is it when the client says it's too expensive? Because you didn't build enough value. They don't perceive the value. I don't know how else to put it. You know, and I guess you just framed it in a different way. And maybe I'll just got to hit that as a, maybe I'll just program a little button that when you, you said somebody says I can just hit the button to listen to this. This is James Muir telling you why. Uh, the unexpected piece is good. If it's not unexpected, then why am I here? listening to you. Out of curiosity, this one just, this question just popped into my head because you've mentioned several authors that I like, you know, who, you know, who out there, and I'm not trying to get you in trouble. I'm not trying to get you, <laughs> I'm not trying to get you in trouble. Okay. So, but who out there, you know, you know, do you like to read content that you go, you know, this person produces consistently good content, or maybe it's a company that produces consistently good content. Who are some people that, and, and I don't want to use the word admire. It's just that wh- whose content you're feeling right now. Oh, um, well, y- and I'm not stroking you. You fall in that category because like, you, like me, love to study the science. And then and then you're mm. so brilliant at taking that insight, which behavioral economics can be complicated, honestly. And mm-hmm. you're, you're able to just boil it down into a simple example. I love it in your keynotes. Anyway, thank I, you, I personally thank you. think you're a high watermark. So, but probably we don't have to sell your, your anybody watching this. On, on watching you because they're already sold. So um, I will tell you this. I love corporate visions uh, as a company. Um, they are dynamite. They're, at, they're awesome. Yeah. They are very good at, at getting the messaging down. And um, what I would tell you is I, I've had the chance to work with some super big companies. Okay. And um, when we get, and they usually bring me in the, Hey, they want to talk about closing or they want to talk about, um, you, know, you know, discovery or something like that. And when we get to peeling back the onion about what really needs to happen, I, I would say in about 80% of cases, what we've discovered is that their messaging, their value props are awful. And, and so um, there's an important thing that, uh, that corporate visions does is they really, really do a great job of helping you refine and craft your message so that it resonates. And, and they've got all the science and all the studies to back up how that works. And so I, um, they, that, it's one of my favorite areas, but mostly because it's such a need. I mean, I, literally every customer I go into, not everyone, but I would say 80% of them, they all have a problem in that area. Yeah, I mean, uh, two people. Two people I admire. I can say this: the two people that I consistently follow because they follow the science. And is I like Brent Adamson, who I just interviewed. Right, I love him over at uh, Gartner. And then Tim, I don't know how you say his last name. Rice, Rice, yeah. Yeah, Reister. there's too many errors in there. And everything that Tim Rice puts out with uh, whoever he co-publishes sometimes with it, uh, I always get the book. It's like blind. You know, I always, those are two books, you know, those two people who they write something, I'm just going to get the book. I just like, yeah, order it. I'm done. Blind. Uh, I don't, else I don't besides, even know. Yeah. They can publish anything. Yeah. 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 And the thing is, they're not well known. And I'm like, why aren't these guys well known? These guys are putting out real high quality content. Is there anybody besides corporate visions that you follow or just like, or even blogs or whatever? Well, you and I hang out with some of the guys that, um, that I record, you know, that I, revere in terms of that. I think Anthony Anarino is phenomenal. I think uh, Jeb Blunt is phenomenal. I think that Mike Weinberg is phenomenal. Mike, Mike's got a, uh, a finesse about distilling things down into a very simple way. And all of his books really exude that. And I think that's why he's so, you know, he's so popular that the principles are great and he doesn't overcomplicate it. Yeah. By the way, I think I think you're following in his footsteps, by the way. I think you're following in his footsteps because he he's all about simplified you're all about perfect. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will, I will. I mean, I was confused for a long time and I'm like, you know what, guys, it's not as complicated as you think it is. Right. And so that's the whole point of 
two questions, right? I don't have to think of, oh no, I, I got to learn a hundred closes, one for every circumstance. And I, and I don't even, I don't even have to, like people debate in our industry, they debate, you know, are you psychic enough to know the right moment to ask the magic question? And the thing is, you don't, because the perfect close is a timing question. You don't have to get the timing right, right? The customer will tell you that. So you, you, you don't have to overthink it. You just have to pl- think, what are the small steps that you'd like the customer to take, I would say, before you go in there? And then these other things, like if you want to make your, this is the part of this earlier in the book that he's referring to, is is you, you really need to make the sales encounter inherently valuable in some way, or, or your value as a salesperson is really waning. I mean, all of the simple sales jobs are going to go away over the next you know 10 years or so, right? Robots and and other tools will replace us. But when you're facilitating a complex decision, right, things that involve more risk and things like that, there's no way that a a robot will ever replace a person. Um, And so there's a high-touch component, right? I mean, we spent a little time in Chapter 3 talking about why your intent matters more than your technique does. uh, Because if they detect that that you're doing something self-serving, you'll laugh at this. I had a, I had a, um, when I was managing one, one of my guys years ago, a customer called me on the phone and said, don't ever have that guy call me back. Don't ever let him, I don't want him coming back here ever again. I'm like, wow, what happened? He goes, that guy has commission breath. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> and I'm like, that captures perfectly the principle I'm trying to explain here is that, is that he could tell that my guy was out there not for, to help the customer out, but to help himself out. Right. And, he and could, they, they sense that. They do. They sense that. Just like a dog senses fear. And so we try to spend a little time talking about that. Anyway, um, so I don't know if that, uh, if that helps, but um, yeah, th- those are some guys that I, uh, I read every single book that comes out, but I'm a, I'm a voracious reader. I mean, I co-host a, uh, a podcast with uh, Douglas Burdett on this, you know, it's the marketing book podcast. And so I'm, uh, in addition to the normal books I read, I read another five books every month with him. And so I probably read over a hundred books a year um, uh, wow. on, on different topics. Got me big. So, yeah, it's yeah. I think I do about maybe two a month. That's that's kind of my rhythm, two a month. But but I I, I want to ask you before I forget, you know, your book, The Perfect Close. If people are listening to this podcast right now, as they're listening to it, you know, who who is the book for? You know, who should buy it? Yeah, so I think that's a legitimate question. What I would say is, the more complex your sale is, the better it's going to. It works for any kind of sale, but if you're in a single meeting sale, one call close type of a sale. It still works, but it's not as valuable because remember that principle that Neil Rackham discovered is that nine out of 10 sales encounters end with either a, a, the sale moving forward in a little way, right? Or continuation. So nine out of 10 times you're, you're getting progress. And so part of the, you know, part of the value is that the perfect close will help you and the customer identify what that small step needs to be to get to the end. So that's when I say it's 95% mm-hmm. successful, what I'm saying is you're either going to get an advance or you get a close each time you use it, right? So yeah, let, I would, me, let me put it. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, finish it. No, finish your thought, please. I would just say the, the, the closer you are to a one call close, the less value it's going to be. It's still going to be valuable. But it, the, the, the more complex your sale is, I would say the, the more valuable it's going to be. Okay, great. I love that. Thank you. But that's good clarification. I wanted to kind of throw a curveball at you. Okay, ready? Here it comes. So how does this now, yeah, it's like I haven't done so already. Uh, how does this work with the remote selling? Let, let me be clear. I'm going to phrase this correctly. You have a structure now where you have SDRs inside, AEs outside, right? And so we have this now virtual selling component that people are talking about. Where where does the perfect close really play in terms of uh, my position within the company? If I'm an SDR, BDR, or an AE, where, where does it really, who needs it most? 
Uh, it's still, I think it applies to everyone. If you're a BDR, then uh, I think the key thing that you got to remember is you're trying to take your, your message offline, right? Right now you're online. I, we're, we're engaging via social channel or we're engaging via email channel. And what you're trying to do is get away from the online channel to a human channel where we're talking over the phone, right? And so you can use a perfect close. Hey, does it make sense for us to schedule a time to whatever, right? You can do that with either of those channels. That works totally fine. And if they say no, you can, again, you can just say, well, what do you think is a good next step if they want to stay online? So it still, it still works. Um, I think where uh, what, what changes a little bit in the virtual world is, um, first of all, um, a, a great deal of our the, the trust building things are compromised because essentially um, you you've got maybe visual if the customer is going to turn their camera on maybe right um, and so if not then uh, what's called para language which is the tonality in your voice that matters a whole whole lot more in virtual selling than um, than in face to face selling and that's because people only they have fewer um, indicators of what that intention is that you have and they're going to pull it out of your voice. Uh, when you're with a customer. So if that's not your strong suit, you got to make sure you turn the camera on so they can see that you're trying to help them face to face, right? So you, you always want to make it as high touch as you can. Don't, you should never be fooled into believing that uh, a virtual meeting is anywhere near as effective as a face to face meeting. It's not, right? But it's, it, it, virtual selling is, is a, a miracle. Right. I mean, we can sell to any person, anytime, anywhere in the world. Right. So you know, I'm, I'm not discouraging it at all. Just know that there's some handicaps that come with it. And, um, and, there, and we could talk a little bit about cameras and audio and all that kind of junk. But um, another thing that is, affects the perfect close is that if you're going to do the whole thing virtual, the number and the kind of things that you can ask for as your advances are a little bit more limited, right? If, if I said, hey, you know, are, are, are going to um, a plant in Australia to do a site visit and walk around it while COVID is active is probably not going to happen, right? So we have to choose advances, and there's still plenty, but we have to choose advances that probably don't involve face-to-face meetings. Um, and so that might mean you introducing me to another executive. It might mean um, us doing some kind of assessment. Anything you can do remote is still fair game. But there are some where our, the advances that we can use to advance the sale are a little bit more limited in a virtual environment. So I don't know if that helped. I mean, no, I, no, you, I, you, answered, I, you, I just, you answered it almost right away. Yeah, At I, the beginning when you said that – go ahead. No, no. I, I, just, I just did a whole webinar on this the other day. So we, we, could, we could do an hour on that. <laughs> okay. The, because just the uh, perfect timing, right, for that question. Because just the, uh, that the advance in this case, you know, uh, you know, does it make sense to, you know, in other words, take it offline now and, you know, just meet or whatever it may be, or even, you know, do an extended meeting. I mean, you answered the question right there and then. Uh, I just want to see how you would pivot that and you pivot that immediately to offline or whatever the advance is. James, the pure Muir, let them know where they can find out more information about you. Sure. So the best place is the website. Um, so I'm constantly struggling with the cap on uh, connections on LinkedIn, which is around 30,000. So I am active on LinkedIn and I try to have enough. I disconnect with people so I can re- make new connections. So LinkedIn is certainly a great place. Dude, is, that, is, that, is, that, is, that, is that your way of bragging? Is that your way of bragging it's that not, you have more connections than I do? I think it was. I it, think it was. It's me, <laughs> it's me pressuring LinkedIn into raising the number. So uh, right, anyway, right. I don't understand the limitations. But whatever. Um, but anyway, uh, but if you go to Pure Muir, it's P U R E M U I R, because my last name's kind of hard to spell, even though it's only four letters and or pronounce. I mean, and so Pure rhymes with Muir, so I, it makes it easy for people to pronounce it right. But if you go there and just, you, I have a huge bundle. Like it has 
like we were only able to cover the kindergarten model today on our on our call, but there, mm-hmm. you can download the models for all five versions, uh, all th- first three chapters of the uh, of the Perfect Close book itself. You can the Seven Deadly Sins. They're all in one bundle now. I used to have like twenty things on my website. Now it's just one big thing. You download that, you get all of it, and so that's a really great place um, to stay connected. And then you'll get the emails and all that stuff. So that, for example, when the book on referrals and stuff comes out. Uh, we'll let you know, and and then you know whatever. If, if it's something interesting to you, to you, then you can get involved. But that's probably the best. I'm actually. You give away. By the way, go ahead. You give away great content, by the way. So I want to encourage people to go to your website. So pure p u r e muir m u i r dot com, and his content is good. But I mean, it, it what rivals it is your layouts. Especially in your workbook, your layouts and the, the attention to detail, the drawing, the layouts are just amazing. Uh, I, I envy them. And I've told you this in the past. So I'm not just saying this to kind of impress people who are listening to this. Your content, the way you lay it out and just the, the, the attention to detail is to be admired, man. Thanks. I appreciate it. We worked pretty hard on that. Uh, we, well, actually, I, I followed a lot of the advice of the corporate visions guys. So that's why it all looks like it's handwritten, the whole thing. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. All right. Check out James Muir at puremuir.com. Download the bundle. Uh, like I said, he's very generous with his giveaways, but I'm going to suggest also support him and the book and support yourself by buying the book. Cause I'm telling you, the perfect close is a great book. And on that note, that's it for the sales influence podcast. Leave us some feedback on Apple iTunes, wherever you find us, Spotify, Pandora. Also, if you're watching this on video, leave us some feedback. Let me know what you think. Check out James Muir again at puremuir.com. And after you download his bundle, check out the Sales Velocity Academy. You know the deal. Help yourself more faster. Great video courses. And on that note, this is Victor Antonio with James Muir, always reminding you, selling hard when you know how. Take care.